Welcome to CBC this morning, everybody. Don't worry. This is the last week with awkward, silent bumpers before I get up here and say hello to everybody. All right? On a side note, you missed an opportunity when Delyn said, do you know what's coming up this Saturday? And you responded, silent retreat. She just stared at her. You're like, see? That's what it's going to feel like. Welcome, if you're joining us in the room, if you're joining us live stream, we're glad you're here this morning. We have been in a spiritual practice in January, like we do. And this is the last week of our study, our look at our practice on solitude and silence, something Jesus modeled and God calls us to. And in a hurried world, I think part of our job is to look at the life of Jesus and say, what do we miss about how our world lives now versus how he lived then? Before we dive into some text this morning, let's prepare our hearts right and let's pray. We come to this place with baggage. We come to this place with an agenda. We come to this place with things to do today because even though we're here, the world doesn't stop. And we want to just sit for a second and we want to say that we join the conversation we're having today as contributors and not critics of what God is doing. As we open the scripture together, we want to ask the simple, small, and big question, what does God have for me today? What does the Holy Spirit want to say to my spirit? So we're going to take just a minute or so and we're going to pray up top. We're going to ask that God speaks to us. I'm going to ask that you pray to yourself silently, that the Holy Spirit might do a work in you this morning. You might pray for me that God might use these words on silence and stillness to show his goodness. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. I'm thankful that in a chaotic world we can find consistency in your character I'm thankful that we can study how Jesus lived and figure out what that looks like for us today. So as we open some scripture and as we talk about the life of Christ and as we talk about one of the Psalms, be with us and teach us, Spirit, guide us. If you're comfortable, take just a couple seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit this morning. And I'd ask that you just pray for me, that God might use the preparation and my words to show his goodness. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. It seems like life is getting faster and faster and busier and busier Last week, a friend of mine asked me what life was like before kids, and I, I literally couldn't comprehend the free time that has been taken from me. Like, I couldn't remember what it was. I was trying. I couldn't physically remember what it was like anymore, and then I felt very ashamed because I thought to myself, what was I doing with my life at that point? Case in point is, Friday morning, <clears throat> I got up at 6.30 in the morning to have a tea party with my daughter. in the morning, and you might say, Charlie, that is adorable, and you are dad of the year. All true things. But she didn't even have any real tea. It was just lukewarm water. There was no caffeine in it because she's selfish at 6.30 in the morning. And life picks up from there. Life seemingly is busier and busier and busier. And here's the deal. In our culture now, it seems like we celebrate busy. Seems like we celebrate busy and not less busy. It seems like we celebrate activity and we don't celebrate stillness. When you when you think about it, even the Ten Commandments asked us to pause, remember the Sabbath, and keep it holy. And out of all the commandments, that's still to this day the only one we brag about breaking. 
Nobody sits there and says, man, I am a hardcore liar. Look at me go. But we say all the time, I can't stop. I don't have time. I'm too important. It's funny how life changes, how our culture shifts. And you've seen it before. I mean, go to art for an example, right? So in the 16th and 17th century, if somebody wanted to paint a beautiful woman, they painted a very pale, very full-figured woman because in that daytime and place, if a woman was dark-complected and she was skinny, that means she had to be outside and working and she wasn't taken care of. Today, that's a far cry from how we depict beauty in our world. There was a social economist named Thorstein Veblen. In, 19, in 1899, he wrote a book called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And he described what it looked like to be rich by saying, the more wealthy people have a conspicuous absence from labor, meaning the more wealthy you got, the less you worked. That's not the case now. Study after study tell us now that the more wealthy people are, the more hours they actually put in at work. But let's get past all that. You might be saying, I'm really not that busy. There was an article that was released in the Journal of Consumer Goods and Research written by a Columbia professor, a Harvard professor, and I think a Yale professor, so all people that are smarter than me. And, and they wrote about not just our attraction to being busy in our culture, but our attraction to seeming like we're busy even when we're not. Let me read you what they wrote. I found it fascinating. They said, the gleam of being both well-off and time poor is something we value, driven by the perceptions that a busy person possesses desired human capital characteristics and is scarce and in demand on the job market. In a curious reversal, the aspirational objects here are not some luxurious goods like a nice watch or a car, which are now mass-produced and more widely available than they used to be, but workers themselves who by bragging about how busy they are can signal just how much the labor market values them and their skills. Even if we're not busy, we pretend to be because that's what we value. Even when we're not busy, we paint the facade of look at how important I am and look how busy I am. And I think in the church world, we contribute to this narrative. In the church world, growing up, I had teachers and people that said to me all the time, the devil never takes a day off. You've heard that before? But in the end, guess what? The devil loses. You want to be like that, you know? <laughs> Why do we put forth this narrative of constant activity and work? Is that the best good for us? And we do it as a church. We do it as a culture. Just as a culture, Americans typically work more than most other countries in the world. These stats are from last year from the International Labor Organization. On average, Americans work 137 hours more per year than the Japanese. 260 hours more per year than the Brits, 500 hours more per year than the French. Shocker there, everybody from America says. More and more, 134 countries have laws setting the maximum length of the work week. We don't, because we value busyness and work and activity. Only 28% of Americans plan to max out their vacation days this year, and the average American only took about 54% of their available time off in the previous 12 months. In total, Americans gave up 212 million days off in 2017, according to Project Time Off. We just left them on the table. Why? Why do we feel this propensity to keep going and to keep going and to keep going, whether we're actually busy or we're not? We find things to fill our time. One of my favorite sayings is by Corey Ten Boom. She said, if the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. It's this idea that... Even in the fabric of how our world was created, there is stillness. There is stopping. 
Between the growing seasons, there is winter and summer. Between heartbeats, there is stopping. Between breaths, your lungs cease to move. In all forms and facets of life, there is periods of stillness and rest built into the fabric of our society. I wonder what the cost is of us not mirroring that, of us not recognizing that. I wonder what the cost is of business in our culture. What we're not doing, by the way, is saying that activity is bad. We're simply saying that an overemphasis on activity as a good might have some bad repercussions in our lives, not just physically, but spiritually. John Ortberg, in his work on spiritual discipline, said, busyness isn't just a disordered schedule, it's a disordered heart. I wonder what activity all the time does to us. And that's really what we've been talking about with silence and solitude. This idea of, of, of not just pausing and retreating, but stopping. Resting, finding stillness. What do we lose when we don't do that? And so today, we're going to go to a very popular verse in Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. And I know it's popular because it's on the most coffee mugs. And that's how we measure these things in the Christian world right now. And so we're going to go to Psalm 4610, and it's this really beautiful verse. And here's what I want to do. I want to look at this psalm in a couple different chunks because it has two reasons before we get to this text that God gives us for being still. It has two conditions before we get to this order where God says, this is why you need to be still. And, and this is a great verse and it's quoted a lot on coffee mugs and it's, it's given a lot for why you need quiet time. And that's all true. But what I think it does in the scope and the context of Psalm 46, what I think it does is it speaks into two reasons why we aren't still. It speaks into two reasons why we don't stop, because God knows us. It speaks into the underlying motivation for why we keep going, whether it's this society or any other one. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Psalm 46. The context of this is really about the goodness of God to the people of God. And like I said, we see two sections in verse 2 to 4, and then really verse 6 through 10, 8 through 10 is what we're going to hit in the second section. But it talks about why we need to be still. And the first one's found in verse 2. It says this, For this reason, we do not fear when the earth shakes, when the mountains tumble into the depths of the sea, when the waves crash and foam and the mountains shake before the surging sea. And then it goes into how God is good in verse 4 again. So it says, God is your refuge in verse one. It says, be still and know at the end. It's tying those themes together. And then it says, because this is when you need to be still. When the, when the earth shakes from underneath you and the mountains fall into the seas. In the, in the first century world, and even before then, they had this idea that the earth sat on these stilts, if you will, with water underneath it. And so it could literally topple over into the seas. They were wrong, but it was the way that they made sense of the world. Moreover, what the writer is doing here she's talking about, he's talking about the idea that there are some things in this world we're confronted with when we simply can't control. And when confronted with things with, we, with which we cannot control, what do we do? Natural disasters from the early days of the ancients to now are always times when we have to check our control at the door. That's why for most of humanity, natural disasters and, and the forces of nature became gods in the Egyptian culture, in the Roman culture, in the Greek culture. The things which were beyond our control became gods to us. I remember the first time I was in an earthquake, I was living in San Francisco, and it was a little guy. But let me tell you, it did some big damage to me. Do you know what it's like? I've been in wind. 
I've been in fire. Do you know what it's like when the earth, I'm from Texas, when the earth shakes under your feet, it throws up in the air everything you thought that was true and good in the world. And so it says here, when literally the earth, the most certain thing that we have, that we stand on, that we build everything on, when that shakes, when your fabrication of control comes crashing down, let me tell you something, that's the moments when you should be still. Because I think what the writer's saying, is the reason why we're not still is because we want to fabricate this illusion of control. We want to fabricate this illusion that we control more than we actually do. So when you're confronted with things when you can't control, stop and ask why. And we live in a culture that fabricates control where you can't. One of my favorite articles in the last couple of years that I've read really like punched me in the gut because it really made me challenge how I control the world around me. You guys know that most elevator door close buttons don't do anything? You know that? They're lying to you. In 1990, there was a Medical Disabilities Act, and what that said was literally that door closed buttons couldn't do anything for the average person because you can't shut the door on somebody hobbling into an elevator with a cane because that's cold. And you could say, Charlie, who would do that? But believe me, you and I both know people that would do that if we're talking to people that we trust. And so what that button is there for, literally, it's there for firefighters and for people with those special keys. They can turn the key and they can shut the door whenever you want. But there's a timed response. The door open button works every time. The door close button, if the elevator has been made and repaired after 1990, is lying to you. And if you get into an elevator that was made in the 80s, get off the elevator that was made in the 80s, okay? This was a long time ago. Uh, second thing I love is study done in 2010, I think it was, in New York City. There's something like 3,000 crosswalk buttons, you know, the things you push to go when the little man turns green. They said 50 of them still work. But they didn't take any out of the city because it was going to be too expensive. And they said it's good for people to feel like they're in control. And so they left them all in. I love New York City. I've gone quite a bit. I'm there jamming the little man and I'm denting the metal with my impatience. And it's not doing anything. But I feel like, I feel like, I feel like I have more control than I do. John Roberts, the Chief Justice, gave the commencement address at his son's senior graduation this year. And I love what he said about our time and place now. He said, the coronavirus has pierced our illusion of certainty and control. Because there are things in this world that as much as we want to fabricate a cocoon of control in our lives, we simply just can't. And here's why we do it. Because the more we think we can control, the more we feel like we're in charge. You know? I want to know that I can control all that I can because if I can control the input, then maybe I can control the output. If I can get my kids signed up for the most things that, that promote healthy children, then maybe one day they'll make enough money to support me when I'm old and not end up in jail. If I could do all these things on the upfront side, maybe on the back inside, things will be okay. We try to control things because when we think we're in control, we think we're in charge. And sometimes, sometimes the psalmist would say you're not. In those moments when you know that you're not in charge, stop and recognize that you don't have as much control as you think you do. One of my favorite writers says it like this, when we cease interfering in the world, we're acknowledging that it's God's world in the first place. And so we talk about solitude and stillness and silence. Just kind of as an example, let's talk about silence as a medium of control. 
Most times people speak because they want to control situations and places. They want to control how people see them. I think oftentimes we use our words as a modicum of control in our lives, says the pastor who won't shut up each and every week. We get up and we talk because we want to control the world around us. Silence breaks our need for control when we speak. Richard Foster, in his seminal work on spiritual disciplines, said, one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel helpless. We're so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we're silent, who will take control? God will take control, but we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. I love what Thomas Merton says about it. It's not speaking that breaks our silence, but the anxiety to be heard. That's one of my favorites. So we practice silence and solitude as a measure of stillness because in that what we're recognizing, even in silence, is that we aren't in control of everything. When the waves crash and the mountains fall over, when the earth shakes from underneath you, be still and know that God is God. Be still and know that you don't control as much as you think you do in a society that begs you to think you control more than you actually can. This idea that maybe we need to practice these rhythms because they moderate our level of actual control. One of my favorite examples of silence as a means of control comes from Dallas Willard. There's an example from a few years ago. He was teaching a class. He's very smart. And I went to Bible college, and in Bible college, you have this false sense that you know more than you do because you're just getting into it. It's like when you first start taking a, a foreign language and you can speak like a broken second grader and you think that you know everything, you know? And so a lot of times students will challenge professors and I just laugh because this professor has been doing this for 20 something years and they've been challenged in all the ways that you can be challenged. So at the end of one of his classes, the student raised his hand and he challenged Dallas Willard and he said, you're wrong here, here, and here. And Dallas Willard wasn't, he was right. And he says, okay, thanks so much. And he ended the class. Another student walked up to him right afterwards and said, why did you do that? You could have crushed that little kid with your responses. He said, I know I could have. He said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word <laughs> because he didn't need to control everything with his words. That's a man that understands that some things are outside of his control, <laughs> whether it be situations or whether it be natural disasters or whether it be how others think of you. The practice of stillness breaks the illusion of control and it fights against our culture of control. It reminds us of God's position in our place in his created world. Without it, we believe that we control more than we actually do. And so the psalmist says, when all these things happen, when you know that you're out of control, when you know that you can't control the world around you, which is a truth you can never run too far away from, stop, be still, and recognize. He talks about that in verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 6, he says that nations are in an uproar, kingdoms are overthrown. God gives a shout, the earth dissolves. The Lord of heaven's armies is on our side. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Verse eight, come witness the exploits of the Lord who brings devastation to the earth. He brings an end to wars throughout the earth. He shatters the bow and breaks the spear. He burns the shields with fire. So he pivots from this idea of disasters and control to this idea of warfare. And you gotta ask the question, why? Because especially in the world, you know, in the BC world, the way that you promoted your agenda, the way that you promoted your God, the way that you promoted your good was you fought for it. 
So what happens is the way that you not only think you can control the world around you, but the way that you exercise that control on the people around you is you fight them and you say, you're going to be more like me. And I wish I could say that that stopped a long time ago, but it's why people have wars now. It's why we fought in World War I and II in Vietnam, is to stop the control of other ideologies that we didn't agree with, right or wrong or in between. We fought and said, our idea of control will be exerted, so we're going to fight for it. So God in this psalm is saying, hey, when you have moments where not only you want to control, but you want to fight for or contribute towards that control in those moments, stop it. Verse 8, come witness the exploits of the Lord who brings devastation to the earth. He will bring an end to wars throughout the earth. He shatters the bow and breaks the spear. He burns the shields with fire. One of my favorite themes throughout the Old Testament is when God was God and people just had to sit and watch. So let's back up and do a little Old Testament history here. He picked a people called Israel, and, and then they went and got taken over by Egypt, moved there, and then enslaved. For 400 years, they were slaves. For 400 years, they were slaves. And then he took them out of that slavery and said, I'm going to make you my people. They go to Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, yay, glowing face and stone tablets, right? And the sign of the sign of that covenant that God made with his people, the sign of this is the deal, you're my people and I'm your God, was the Sabbath day. We talked about it last January. You know, stop. <laughs> Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You got to think about how hard that must have been for a people that were defined by work for generation after generation after generation. For 400 years, they never got a day off. They were exactly what they produced. And God says, no, that stop. You're not anymore. As they're fleeing from the Egyptians in that narrative, they come up to this body of water, the Red Sea. You probably know the story. And they're backed up against it. And they see that Egypt is coming towards them, Pharaoh and his chariots, which was modern warfare at that point. They led the world in, in, in military technology. They're, they're coming towards a backed up Israelite people. And in Exodus 14, the people look at Moses after God had just delivered them in amazing ways and say, were there not, literally, they say, was there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? And Moses looks at the people and he says these words. He looks at the people and he says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's amazing what, we're, what we see when we're silent. There's an old proverb that says that when you start speaking, you close your eyes. <laughs> And so he says to his people, I'm going to work and you are going to watch. It's this practice of silence. It's not just the fact that you can't control, but every once in a while, you need to recognize that you're not even going to contribute to this cause because it's mine. It's mine. That's why one of my favorite things we do at CBC is, is no agenda. It's something where high school kids are going to in a couple weeks. And, and we take students and we don't plan their schedule and we don't plan all these conferences with speakers and worship. Nothing wrong with any of that. We just go into the woods at a camp and we say, we're just going to sit for two days and we'll talk when we talk and we'll read scripture when we read scripture, but there's not going to be an agenda. We're just going to sit because your life is really busy and maybe we've lost the art or we've lost the practice of being still. So he says, God's going to sit or you're going to sit and God's going to move. Watch God exert his influence on the world without your help, Israel, in the psalm. He says, be still, verse 10, and know that I am God. 
And then that word still there in the Hebrew doesn't just simply mean stop moving or being still. It means literally you were striving for something and now you're not anymore. It it, kind of means cease. Some translations I like say stop your striving and recognize that I am God. The, The word picture is if two people are fighting over something, you go in and you break them up and you say, guys, it's time to stop fighting right now. Stop struggling. It says, stop struggling and know that I am God. And it comes to this idea that sometimes we need to recognize that God allows us to be in the battle, but the battle is God's from the beginning. It's, it's Jericho, keeping with the Israelite narrative. As they kept going into the new world, they get there. It's Jericho, there's walls, there's big people. And this is the first battle that God's going to give his people. And so I think how he does that is indicative of who he is. They cross over, and you probably know the story. They march around the city, these big walls for six days, and they they scream things, and they shout. They march around the city. And on the seventh day, they march around the city, and God says, march around in complete silence. Why? Because you're going to know in this moment that I brought you here, and I delivered you. You're going to know in this moment that even though I brought you here, you had nothing to do with my victory. You're going to understand that when you're still, you more clearly see me for who I am. What happens when we're not still? We have to understand the difference between God needing our help and God using our help. One is a source of an inferior God and one is the source of a gracious God. Every once in a while, I'll get an invitation to play in golf tournaments, like four-man scrambles. And I say every once in a while because people look at me and they think, man, you look super athletic, you can play golf. And then I come play and they never ask me to play again. Um, I'm not very good. I, I'm a personality, right? I'll make you laugh a couple times in the course, but I'm not going to make a putt. And, and there is a four-man scramble format. If you've played in these, you know what I'm talking about. So you have a team of four people, and, or two people, or fill in the blanks there. And you hit a shot, and you take the best ball um, in, in all that shot, and you play best ball. When I play in these, I mean very rarely is my ball considered the best ball, <laughs> you know? Very, very rarely. But throughout the course of a day, 18 holes, I'm usually with some people that are pretty good. And every once in a while, every once in a while, they'll say, you know what, Charlie, we're just going to use your ball. And they say that because they know they can overcome my ball because they're that good. There's a difference between using us because God needs us and using us because it's a grace merited to us because he loves us. And he's including us in his plan of winning, Right? When God includes us, it's not because he needs us, it's because he loves us, because it shows value to us. So when we talk about being used by God, when we talk about contributing to the plan of God, we need to understand it comes from a place of God using us, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. The grace of God fundamentally tells us that we aren't, we aren't, we aren't what we produce. But we are loved because he loved us. It's a hard thing to hear in an active culture that's based on, really, you are the best thing you've ever done. And so the writer of this psalm says, you're going to be still and know, and God's going to fight your battle today. Sit and be still in the middle of it. God will influence the people and build his influence without your help today. And so he says, be still and know that I'm God. The practice of stillness fights against our culture of contribution and reminds us of a gospel of grace. Because he says, be still. And here's what stillness does. This is what we're building towards. Stillness does really one thing really well. Stillness helps us know that God is God and we aren't. He says, be still. Why? Because you need to know that I am God. That word there, 
when it says it in the text, when it says be still and know in the Hebrew, what it really means is not just like I know on paper and I can answer the question, but I know it deep within my soul. I understand it and I know it in such a way that it influences how I live my life. It's more just I know knowledge. It's I understand what the knowledge means in my day to day. I've used the example quite a few times, but it's the difference between, I read a ton of books before I had my first kid. I knew what it was going to be like to be a parent. I knew what tea parties at 6.30 in the morning were, and then I get to the tea party at 6.30 in the morning, and I didn't know anything about what I thought I knew. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. He says, you're going to be still because it's in the stillness that you fully know that you can't control everything and you can't contribute to all the things that make this world the world you want it to be. It's in the stillness that we recognize. It's in the stillness before God that stops the lie that we are God. That's what it does. Because as, as we revolve around these themes of control and contribution in our world, these lies that I can control more than I actually can and I contribute more than I actually do. It builds us up this narrative that I am more than I actually am. It builds this narrative that I can do all the things that maybe God can do. When we're still, it puts us in place and we recognize that we aren't God, but he is. What do we lose when we stop being still? A perspective on who God is and how he uses us and who we are. And in a world that keeps striving and keeps striving and keeps striving, we need a reminder that God is God. Because it starts by saying God is our refuge. And if we keep believing over time that we can convince ourselves and we can save ourselves and we can deliver the world that we want by ourselves, what we do in the process is we lose the real deliverer and refuge, which is God and has been God all along. In his book, A Hidden Wholeness, Parker Palmer tells a story Maybe it's because I have family up north, but he talks about how in the Midwest and up in Canada, back in the day and even today, they would, in the winter, tie a rope from their front door to wherever they needed to go on farms or outside, barns or something else that's on a farm. I live in Dallas. And so they would hold this rope when they'd go out because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, sometimes these blizzards would pop up, like really out of nowhere, kind of like rain in Texas. And sometimes they'd get really fierce. And so there were literal stories of people in the upper Midwest in Canada that would go out to do something and a storm would roll in and they would lose perception and it's a whiteout and they would lose where they were. And they actually found people that had froze to death and died feet from their front door because they couldn't find their way back before. So they tied this rope. And as they got farther out there, they'd realize when the storm hit and the blizzard came in, they'd grab this rope and it would lead them back to where they needed to go. We live in a distracted world and if we're not still, we forget that we forget that God's the rope and we're not. <laughs> we forget that God's God and we're not. So why do we fight for stillness in a world that is very not still? Because the first verse in this text tells us, God is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper in times of trouble. And if we're not still, we forget. And so we fight for silence and we fight for solitude and we fight for stillness because it helps us remember that God is our refuge in a world that sometimes seems and is chaotic. And so we're going to take communion in just a second, and, and we're actually, today's going to be a little different how we end our service. We're going to enter into a, a time of, of silence. Don't be scared. We'll walk you through it a little bit this morning. Um, but before that, I, I think you know, one of the beautiful things of all these things we've talked about, stillness and silence and solitude, really when we talk about all these things, it's because the world is loud and because we're surrounded by things and because the world is really active. And so as the people of God, what happens as we practice these practices more? 
Really, all of them, all of them give us peace in a world that yells at us, gives us peace in a world that pushes us forward when maybe we just want to stop. It gives us peace in a world that surrounds us. It gives us peace that nobody else can deliver. I'm reminded of Horatio Spatford who, who wrote It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know if you know this story. It's one of my favorites. Before he wrote this song, he had a wife and four daughters and he put them on a boat and he said, we're going to go to London. There was a sickness breaking out in the States. And he put them on a boat because he had a work commitment that came up. And on the way over there, there was a crash and he got a telegram from his wife that said, there was a crash and I'm the only one that survived. And so he jumps on a boat to go be with his wife because they lost their daughters. And as he's going by the site where the boat crashed, the captain pulled him up and said, this is the site where your family died. And he took a minute and he took it in and they went back to his room and he wrote these words. He says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know that it is well with my soul. Because in moments when the world is loud and hurried and chaotic, stillness, silence, and solitude remind us that God's our refuge. This isn't the end. And he's still good. And that we're not that and we need it. And really, that's what we do when we take communion together. So if you have a cup, grab it. When we take communion together, it is a reminder that God is good. When we take communion together, it is a reminder of his graciousness. When we take communion together, it is a reminder that he did things that we can't do. It's a reminder that God is good. When we take communion together, we sit and we receive. We don't do anything. We re- when we eat the bread and when we drink the juice, we're reminded of what Jesus did, not what we can do. Because in Jesus' death, he reminded us that he delivered a victory for us that we couldn't contribute towards over death that we couldn't control. And so as we take communion, we're reminded of stillness because God acted when we didn't have to. And so on the night that he went to the cross, Jesus took some bread and he broke it. And he looked at his disciples and he said, this, this, this is my body. Yours won't be broken, but mine will for you. Every time you eat, remember what I did for you. Just sit and remember what I did for you. Take and eat. And then he lifted up his cup and he says, this wine represents my blood that is shed for you something I did and you just sit and receive something you didn't contribute towards because you can't control what happens next but I can the heart of the gospel is that God moved towards us because he loved us know that you're loved know that God fought for you sit in the stillness and remember and drink God I'm so thankful you invite us into practices that don't come naturally to our world, that you invite us into practices that remind us of our place in your world, that you invite us into practices that, that make us realize how great you are and how much we need you. So today as we sit, as we sing, and as we practice stillness together, might it be an encouragement to a God that's good, to a God that's in control or not, to a God who fights for us, so we don't have to. We pray these things in his name.